I'm Jason. Uh, it is a delight to, to get to be with you tonight. Um, truly, it's one of my, my greatest honors to, to be up here. It took about eight years for me to embrace the fact that I, I may have some gifts for teaching and I like teaching. Um, I, I resisted it for a long time. Kirsten finally changed my mind about that. And, and, then, uh, and then all of a sudden, like my LinkedIn profile now is like, I'll, I'll stop preaching when you tear the Bible out of my cold, dead hands. Uh, so I can't... Thank you. Um, I, I'm really just so grateful to get to open God's Word with y'all. Um, tonight, I don't know in the peculiar sense what you are in bondage to. What you want to be freed from, how, uh, how you want to experience victory or change in your life. I don't know. I know that all of us have these things. And I don't know in the peculiar sense where God will lead you this side of the resurrection. We know a lot about what's coming. Not enough to satisfy our curiosity, but enough to awaken our imagination. Um, but whatever you're experiencing, wherever you're experiencing bondage, wherever you're experiencing death, wherever you're experiencing a lack of victory... And wherever God is going to take you, I know that what exists between those places is a wilderness. I know that. And I know that what you need is an encounter with the living God and a sacrifice. A couple years ago, my wife and I got into a really big fight. And uh, as I was putting one of my, one of my kids to bed... That night, um, one of my daughters, I, 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 I was just still kind of an emotional wreck, and uh, I wanted to try to make peace with my kids and see if they were okay. And I, uh, I asked this daughter of mine, I said, do you, um, do you have any questions? And she said, are you and mommy getting a divorce? And it was, the, it was the first time, and to this day, the only time I've ever heard that word in our, in our marriage. My wife and I have been married over 15 years. Um, and, and I come, I, I, my, my mom had me when she was 17 and there's been all kinds of marriages and divorces in my mom and dad's lives. And, um, and it was, it just got all the wounds, you know, like it touched all the wounds in me, uh, that, that my kid, uh, felt unsafe for a moment, you know? And, uh, and by the grace of God, um, I mean, the spirit of God just, just, man, it was so timely. My wife had told me just earlier that day before we were arguing, um, she had said something about the week before that she and this particular daughter of mine got into a big argument. And this daughter of mine said in the midst of that argument, um, I don't like you anymore and I'm going to move to Nora's house. Which is a horrible thing for my wife to hear, you know. But, but, and I didn't know what to do with that. I wasn't there for the argument. I don't know the peculiar things that they were fighting about or anything like that. But, but the Spirit of God, I think, reminded me of that story in this moment when I was feeling so vulnerable and like I had nothing left. Um, and it just, it, it, it just, the light struck. And she said, are you and mommy going to get divorced? And I said, so mommy told me that last week you and her got into a big fight and you wanted to move to Nora's house. Do you remember that? She goes, yeah. And I said, well, sometimes I want to move to Nora's house too. That's all. And she goes, you want to move to Nora's? And I was like, well, it's not, sometimes, yes. <laughs> you know, um, and, and whatever. And she's like, well, you're not going to, right? And I was like, no, you're not going to either. Like, and your mommy and I got married specifically so that at nights like this and in moments like this, we would not leave each other, but we would stick it out. We made covenant vows so that you never have to worry about us getting divorced. And because I'm so intense, 
Uh, and you should be lucky not to have dads like me. Uh, I'm like, it just we're married until one of us dies. And she's like, dies? And then, you know, we had to talk about that, of course. But, um, but, I, but what happened in that moment, I don't, I don't know what I just did in this moment to make the mic do that, but I'm going to hang out for a second. I'm going to leave it alone. What I was so thankful for in that moment is I didn't know how to explain to my daughter something that was so complex and something so, I mean, we were, um, it was so hard for me to figure out what to say to her. And I was so thankful that I had language and images that she did understand that I could kind of riff on so that she could use those categories to map onto what I was really going through. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, if I started talking to her about the difference between my will and my feelings, and how I needed to make sure that they were ordered in the right way, and those guys, she would have been like, whatever. But when I'm like, do you ever want to move to Nora's house? She's like, I get that. And so I, I was so thankful to have language like that, 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 that I had language she could relate to so that I could explain something to her that was quite complex. And I think something like this happens all over the pages of the New Testament of the Bible. Over and over again, writers use Old Testament language to explain what is going on in the New Testament. They use Old Testament language to explain what's going on in Jesus Christ. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul uses the language of us being living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is straight up Leviticus language. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about how Christ gave himself up as a fragrant offering to God. Peter and Paul both talk about their lives being poured out as drink offerings. Or that we are the aroma of Christ. Expanding on a burnt offerings and incense idea out of Leviticus. And even when non-Jewish people are coming into the church, the Gentiles, they're called, in Romans 15, they are seen, quote, as an acceptable and holy offering to God. And when the sacrifice of Jesus is talked about, we find language about the Passover or Jesus being a scapegoat, taking our sins outside the camp, or being a thank offering, or a free will offering, or a burnt offering, or you hear about the redemption of sins, or first fruits, or, or a kind of vicarious replacement over and over again. This is Old Testament, namely Leviticus language, in the New Testament. Everything I just said is New Testament language now. And it's almost as if you have to know that in order to know this. If you have some sense of what a free will thanks offering is in Leviticus, then you might have some understanding of what Jesus Christ was up to when he offered himself up on the cross. Understanding that helps you understand this. John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, Jesus tells his listeners that if they really knew Moses, they would know him. Or after his resurrection in Luke 24, when Jesus is walking down the road to Emmaus with two disciples trying to make sense of what happened in the death of their Messiah, Jesus opens up the Old Testament and from beginning to end he shows them how all of it was pointing to him and how the Messiah must be crucified and rise to glory. Don't you see, you guys? Old Testament language. If you understand that, then maybe you can understand this. In our scripture reading this evening from Hebrews chapter 10, we read that followers of Jesus have confidence to enter the holy places. 
But that's not very encouraging if you don't know what the holy places are or what that means. But if you already know that, then maybe you can know this. If you already know that the holy places are a type of Eden where humans and their God are at peace in this world, well, then you can know that Jesus gives us confidence to draw near to God in peace. You don't have to be afraid to come into the presence of God, even if your life and the world around you has been living in contradiction to the Creator. Regardless of what you did today or last night or this weekend or what you have never done, your confidence in drawing near to God has nothing to do with you. Your confidence has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus' body in in this passage from tonight in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's called the curtain, which isn't very encouraging if you don't know what the curtain significance is. But if you do, if you already know that, then maybe you can know this. That the curtain which kept God's presence separate from everyone else in the holy place, that curtain through which the priest needed to go in order to offer the atonement sacrifice, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus' body is that curtain. So that when you enter into Jesus' body, you have gone through the curtain and into the holy of holies or to the holy place, which we just talked about a second ago. And so now, when the New Testament writers start talking about what's happening in communion, in the communion meal or the Lord's table, or when they're talking about the church as the body of Christ, if you begin to pay attention to this language, You know that when you are in the body of Christ, you pass into the most holy place. This is big stuff. And I don't suppose every one of us in this room is tracking right now because we're using a bunch of big Old Testament categories. And so few of us spend time in the Old Testament. And that's not to shame you. I just know that's a reality. But these are all coming in the New Testament. This language is in the New Testament. As if we need to know that in order to know this. The author of Hebrews goes on to call Jesus our great high priest and that our hearts are sprinkled clean. These are again Levitical phrases. In your order of worship, I actually made those words bold that are all like riffing on these Leviticus categories. These are confusing if we don't know what any of them are about. One of the challenges that I found in preaching through the book of Leviticus is that it's everywhere. When we first started designing this series... You know, I was aware that Leviticus is a book that we typically skip or or skim at best and and often squirm through. It's like it's a punching bag for people on TikTok who are deconstructing their faith. There's a couple of verses in Leviticus that we have no idea how to handle in our current cultural moment. And I wanted to take a swing this semester at kind of suggesting that we could see good news of the kingdom of God in the pages of Leviticus. And I thought that that would be a little challenging, but let's try it, you know? But it turns out it wasn't challenging at all. Like, because just about every time good news is proclaimed in the New Testament, it's using language riffing off Leviticus and its related stories. It's actually been one of the easiest books that I've ever preached from because every idea in Leviticus is related to every big idea in the Bible. What's been really challenging is that Leviticus is about everything. And so every sermon, there's like a ton of stuff on the cutting room floor that I'm just leaving there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish you guys could be with me all week studying Leviticus. You guys are like, nope. Um, okay, it is a strange book though. 
Okay, and I put this quote in there. Okay, one of the commentary on the website, one of the commentaries that I've been reading this semester is from Ephraim Radner. He's a theologian and a professor at Wycliffe College in Toronto. Um, And I want you to listen. This is at the end of his commentary on Leviticus. If you don't know what commentaries are, a ton of really smart Christians um, spend a lot of time, often years. Uh, Often they'll memorize books. They'll study original languages. They'll they'll, they'll, um, they'll research every commentary, uh, not every, but almost all the major commentaries that have existed up until the time of their writing their commentary. They'll compile that stuff, see if we've discovered anything new archaeologically, all those kinds of things. And they'll put together um, essentially comments about Bible books or passages. Okay, these are my favorite things to read. Um, True story. Okay, Um, But listen, at the end of his commentary on Leviticus, I want you to listen to how he summarizes uh, his findings. Okay, he says this, and this is uh, written on your webpage. We cannot read Leviticus like any other book of the Bible. It has virtually no stories from which we can draw examples of life and response. It offers no moral exhortation within a developed theological framework. It barely refers to the events of God's life with Israel, although it itself is such an event. There are no reflections upon God within it. More than any other scriptural book, then, it is for the Christian a lens rather than the object of vision itself. It is a lens rather than the object of vision itself. It is a lens, like glasses. Glasses through which everything else becomes more clear. Like if you understand that, then you will have the clarity to understand this If you were with me in the first couple weeks this semester, we looked at Leviticus sitting at the center of the first five books of the Bible, which are often called the Torah or the Torah. And on one side of the Torah, we find the people of God enslaved. And on the other side of the Torah, they are entering the promised land. And in the center of the center of the Torah, we discover God making atonement or making peace with his people through sacrifice. So what stands between bondage and liberation? What sits between slavery and the promised land? Well, a wilderness where people encounter God and they encounter Him specifically through sacrifice. And I want you to think about that just for a second, okay? I'm going to say that again. Like, what stands between bondage and liberation? What stands between slavery and the promised land? A wilderness where people encounter God through sacrifice. And I want you to think about that as a lens through which to understand the rest of Scripture, okay? For, for people to go from bondage to liberation, they need to encounter God in the wilderness. And they will encounter Him through sacrifice. To go from stranger to friend, to go from not my people to my people, to go from death to life, they need to encounter God in the wilderness. And in the midst of their encounter, there will be sacrifice. And then if we begin to use those same kind of glasses, that kind of lens, like if you start reading the Bible that way, you start paying attention to where people are are coming from and where God is taking them, pay attention to the wildernesses. Is that the plural? I think that's the plural. That they go through and the way in which they will encounter sacrifice in that process. They begin to see that pattern over and over and over again. Now they begin to turn that lens on your own life. Is it possible that for you, To go from bondage to liberation, you need to encounter God in the wilderness. And right there in the wilderness, meet Him in sacrifice. Will you need to get your affairs in order and live differently? Will you need to stop everything you've been doing and do everything you have not been doing? Without a doubt, if you encounter the living God, 
and you are changed by Him, you will live differently without a doubt. Your heart will be made new. You will say no to the kingdoms of this world and say yes to the kingdom of God. But all of that happens in response to you encountering God in the wilderness through sacrifice, not beforehand. There is no other way. There is no other way to get from here to there. Wherever God wants to take you, it will come through wilderness and it will come through sacrifice. But it strikes me for a minute, because I think our minds may go here, mine definitely does, that there's nothing really unique about asking somebody for sacrifice. It's the nature of love. It's the nature of worship. Anything you really want in this life or love in this life requires you to sacrifice other things for it. Any club you join, any career you take, any commitment you make, all require some reordering of things in your life in order to move toward this thing that you're giving yourself to. Everything, everything that matters requires some degree of sacrifice. Everything. One of the infinitely unique things about our Lord Jesus Christ is that He offers Himself to you first. He lays down His life for you and offers you His entire inheritance before you've moved an inch toward Him. And so when we encounter God in Jesus Christ in the middle of the wilderness, what we discover is that He's already been moving toward us. That he who asked you to count the cost of following him, he who invites you to give up everything to follow him, those are words of Jesus, he's already offered you his entire kingdom first. The New Testament writers are stunned by what they see in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They see in him the perfect Israelite who offered his sacrifices to God. They see in him the high priest who prepares and receives the sacrifice. They see in him the curtain through which somebody goes to encounter the holy place. They see in him the holy place. They see in him the sacrificial lamb. They see in him the scapegoat. They see in him the consuming fire. They see in him the one who receives the sacrifice. They see in him the one who makes peace between God and his humanity. And when they see all of this, they call it the fulfillment or the summing up or the gathering together. They, they call it, at a couple places, they call it the fullness of time. When they see all of this and they see God's commands and His promises fulfilled in this way, oh my gosh, everything that God has set forth has happened and it's happened perfectly. Now what? They see a new way opening forward, a way forward based entirely on grace. The second half of Leviticus, the first half we've talked about this this semester, is like this sort of the people of God who've just recently been freed ascending this mountain to meet with God, and that's terrifying because there's fire and thunder up there, you know. Then when he comes down the mountain in the fire and in the smoke, he's still terrifying and whatever. But, but when they meet him in the atonement sacrifice from there on out in Leviticus, there's this outward movement back out into the world. Well, the second half of Leviticus is a calling on the people of God to live in response to God's atoning sacrifice for them in the middle of Leviticus. Given that they're his people, given that God has made peace with them, given that his name is upon them and how he's bound himself to them in unfathomable ways, they are called to live differently than the people around them. All of God's commands have moral and ethical implications for the world around us. Seriously, all of God's commands 
have moral and ethical implications for the world around us. Remember, friends, that loving God and loving neighbor are inextricably bound. But what the law was powerless to do, that is, to change our hearts from the inside out so that we would be able to live like kingdom of God people rather than like the Egyptians or the Canaanites, rather than the zealots for our culture today. Kingdoms will come and go. What the law was powerless to do, Jesus mysteriously accomplishes for us in the offering of himself and in the pouring out of the Spirit upon us. He will put new desires in your heart. He will give you new strength to fight battles you've always lost as he melts your hearts in the offering of himself. As you realize that only here do you get the verdict before the trial. I love that. So Tim Keller, he summarizes the gospel that way. He says, oh my gosh, the good news is that in Jesus you get the verdict before the trial. The good news is that you already know what God thinks about you before you've taken a step. And it's good. When you realize that the one who made you and sustains you has not forgotten you, has not overlooked you, has not betrayed you, has not abandoned you, has not given up on you. I think again about that and this. If we can see Jesus in the Last Supper and know that he's there washing the feet of of his best friends who don't understand him one of whom would literally sell him for 30 pieces of silver and then regret it so much he'd toss the bag aside and hang himself on a tree. And he washed that person's feet. And he he offers them his body and his blood and his friends who would leave him alone in in his moment of most anxiety. He was so anxious, the scriptures tell us, just hours after this meal that he was sweating blood and his friends couldn't even stay awake to pray for him. And then while he's being beaten and flogged and crucified, everybody betrays him. But those precious women who stood by his side and the beloved disciple John. Even, how crazy is it to realize that when, if you understand that, that he is doing all of this for them even while they are doing that. If you can understand that, then maybe you can understand this. That he's not forgotten you, overlooked you, betrayed you, abandoned you, or given up on you. When you realize that even in the wilderness and even at the moment you encounter God, the sacrifice of Jesus is enough. It's enough for you. And the only sacrifice left is one of praise. It's one of thanksgiving. It's a living sacrifice, the Apostle Paul says. Giving your life in response to his life for you. Bless you. Eternally, God's posture toward you is that of a servant. It would be worth it right now for you to close your eyes and imagine, and this might be really hard to imagine, I just want to take a second to try it. What do you think God's posture is toward you? What's the, it, it, what's the look on his face? Is he pleased with what he sees? Is he like an angry, capricious dad? Is he like a moral cop hiding around the corner? Eternally, his posture toward you is that of a servant. Kneeling before you and calling you his friend. 
Even if you have betrayed or forgotten or abandoned God, even if you resist or fight against him, when the New Testament writers see Jesus gathering all of the Leviticus commands unto himself, when they see him making peace, making atonement for all, wiping the slate clean and creating a new starting point, not just once, like those high priests of old. This is such a lovely thing. It's right before our passage we read tonight. The author of Hebrews compares the the priests of old who used to offer the sacrifices and they'd stand every day offering it. The, The author of Hebrews says when Jesus makes his sacrifice, he sits down and he rests because it's enough. Once he did it, the author of Hebrews says he sits down and he rests because it was done and it was enough. Whatever bondage you need to be freed from, whatever wilderness you're going through, wherever God is taking you, We meet him in the eternal sacrifice of his son. We meet him in the cost already paid. We meet him in the debt already forgiven. The author of Hebrews says, have confidence. Have confidence. Later on, he would say, be bold. Later on, he would say, we are not of those people who shrink back because we have confidence. Not because you got it right, or because you behaved, or because of your strength, because you try really hard, because you say I'm sorry and you really mean it, but because our confidence is found in our brother, the great high priest, the king of kings, and the lord of lords, and he has already decided what he thinks about you. And it's that you are worth bringing into creation, you are worth sustaining in this creation, you are worth saving in this creation, and you are worth bringing into glory. And if that's true, and it is, we ought to be reminding each other of that often. Gaining more and more confidence as our time in the sun draws near. Stirring each other on to good work and gathering together often to remind each other of it because those are not the messages that we hear in the world. The movement from bondage to liberation, from death to life, happens in the wilderness. Encountering God through the humble, sacrificial son we call Jesus Christ, who has made peace with his friends. And who sends us out into the world as ambassadors of that message and of that kind of reconciliation.